Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. The Rob Report here on 970 WDAY. I'm Rob Port. Happy to be with you. Good afternoon, Atil. How are you? Doing good today, Rob. I am watching the last Yankee spring training game of the uh, of the of the year. Ah, baseball, baseball, baseball. And then uh, the well, I guess they'll have another exhibition game in Atlanta, and then and then uh, it's opening day. Real and season starts. The real season starts. It's actually going to be uh, it's going to be great. Hey, a little <laughs> bit of breaking news: the uh, state senate. You know, yesterday the house uh, voted to o- override uh, Senator Doug Bur- or, uh, Senator Doug Burgum, Governor Doug Burgum's veto of uh, of legislation limiting executive branch bonuses. Uh, the the house uh, voted to overturn the veto uh, today. The Senate voted to sustain it, which was pretty much as I had wrote earlier this week. Lawmakers had told me that was pretty much how it was going to go down. So. Uh, Governor Doug Burgum's first veto stands, and uh, it was the uh, vote was thirteen to thirty-three. Anyway, we're going to move on straight into our uh, our first guest, Senator John Hoven. Senator, thanks for your time and welcome to the program. Rob, good to be with you. You uh, you miss those days when you had veto fights with the legislature? <laughs> well, I tell you, I, I, it was an honor, and I very much enjoyed serving as governor of the state of North Dakota. And, uh, you know, I, I found my relationship with the legislature got better throughout my tenure. Uh, if you remember, it forced yeah. a special session in my second term. And, uh, you know, we just were able to build a better relationship uh, through, uh, through time. And so, yeah, we had some battles. But all in all, I, I think it worked, yeah. and I think they do a good job. Well, and, and, and battles are part of the, the process, too, right? I mean, that's that's exactly. built in. That's that's what what it's supposed to be. That's why we have separate co-equal branches of government. Well, I didn't that's, bring you. Yeah. I, I didn't well, bring you on. To, that's right on. That's yeah. the checks and balances that protects the rights of the people. Well, I didn't bring you on to talk about the good old days back when you were governor. I uh, <laughs> wanted to talk about what's going on in Washington, D.C. today. Sure. You, we got to talk about this Internet privacy bill because people are flipping out about this. They're upset. They're saying the ISPs are going to sell our data. I had Congressman Kramer on yesterday. Uh, he said he, he thinks this is going to enhance privacy. He says this is going to allow the FTC uh, and the FCC uh, to get together to harmonize their rules and what we're going to get is better privacy protections. But I don't know. You go on Facebook, you go on Twitter, you hear a lot of people talking, and everybody's saying ISPs are going to sell our data. What what exactly did you vote for, Senator? No, I think you know. I think Kevin understands this stuff pretty well uh, from his days as a regulator, and I think he's right. This essentially will harmonize the regulation between the FTC, the Federal Trade Commission, and the FCC, the Federal Communications Commission, and make sure that it is consistent, that it protects your privacy, and that it's consistent so that you don't have uh, one set of rules for ISPs and then a different set of rules for websites, search engines, social media, and so on and so forth. So, uh, you know, the goal is to have better privacy and make it consistent uh, and, and uh, make sure that it works um, and protects people. I, I understand, you know, and, and that's what Congressman Kramer was saying, and, and there was some concern about, you know, how the FCC went about implementing this rule and, and how it was applied and, and taking that power away from the FTC. And I understand all that. But, well, but Rob, but you when, understand, when, look, this was just a proposed rule. It was never sure. implemented. So there's no privacy lost. It was never in effect. So, so the rule that that was uh, that was under the Obama, that, that was, I, I guess you're saying proposed under the Obama administration, that was this never was- in effect? Exactly. This was a proposed rule by the FCC, Obama-era proposed rule by the FCC, uh, 
something they've proposed to put in place, but the FTC has been the one that has provided, uh, you know, the rules. And so, again, now uh, the head of the FCC has said, uh, and his name, I think, is Ajit Pai. Uh, he's the chairman of the FCC. And what he's going to do now is uh, put a rule in place with the FCC that is consistent with the FTC. What Going forward, though, I mean, and obviously the big concern, and, and this is the talking point everybody has, the ISPs are going to sell our data. By your understanding of the legislation, is that going to be possible when this becomes law? You know, I don't, I don't have a good answer for that because I'm not sure how it works. But my point is the same privacy protections that applied in the past will apply going forward. As far as sales of data, that's, a, that's I think, uh, an issue that you know, I'd have to get more information for you as far as what can or can't be. What I'm trying to tell you is that it's not privacy that people don't have now that they had before. This is about making sure that you have a cons- that privacy in place going forward and that it's consistent whether you're talking about Internet service providers, websites, search engines, or whatever. 701-293-9000, email talk at WDAY.com. I have Senator John Hoven on the line if you'd like to comment uh, or, or have any questions. Let's switch gears. Uh, President Trump doing a lot on on energy regulation energy policy uh, a lot of good things for, for north dakota first of all just give us an overall view how does this look going forward for north dakota all the things that president trump has done well no question in the energy it's going to make a big difference uh you know we're talking about uh the uh so-called clean power plan which would have required a 45 percent reduction uh in uh, carbon dioxide on the part of our uh power plants and that would have forced power plants to, to shut down, cost us jobs, driven up the price of electricity. Uh, so that's huge. Um, the moratorium on leasing coal on federal lands, that uh, not only held up uh, coal leasing on federal lands, but also on private lands, because companies have to be able to work with both, uh, allowing states to take a lead in hydraulic fracturing, obviously vitally important uh, in terms of our oil and gas industry. So all these things are very important. Uh, for energy development in our country and certainly for North Dakota. I was just reading an article in Politico where they were talking about one sort of part of of the most recent executive order, the energy independence order from President Trump that has been overlooked by a lot of people, is that he is changing some of the definitions and how the federal government measures the cost of, say, carbon emissions from a coal plant, that he's making some fundamental changes there. Were you aware of that, and, and, and what are your thoughts on that, on, on, on the president sort of changing those calculations? Well, remember what happened was the uh, Congress refused during the Obama administration to pass a carbon tax. So essentially what President Obama did through regulation, through the EPA, was he imposed a carbon tax through regulation, and then he called it the Clean Power Plan. That's exactly what it was. It applied both to uh, any new plant that would be built, as well as to uh, existing plants that would be built. And as part of that, they also developed, um, you know, a rule uh, that would determine a social cost for carbon. And that was how they applied uh, the, uh, the the reductions that had to be provided to meet the requirements of the uh, of his uh, carbon rule, of his clean power plant rule. Tell me about this uh, last question. Tell me about this BLM uh, methane flaring rule. Um, It was uh, you you folks have been doing a lot of work through 
the Congressional Review Act on, on a lot of different regulations. But this is one that's been sort of held up, um, not there yet, haven't held a vote yet. Senator Heitkamp's still on the fence about it. Where are we at on this? Are we going to get a vote? And, and how Senator Heitkamp going to come down? Have you talked with her about it? You know, I have not talked to her about it, but we're trying to get to 51 so that we can utilize the Congressional Review Act uh, to rescind uh, the flaring rule. Again, this is a, a rule that the Obama administration put in place as they were going out the door that uh, takes over, has a federal one-size-fits-all rule that, that takes over flaring, uh, the regulation of flaring, rather than letting the states uh uh, you know, oversee the regulation in regard to flaring of natural gas. And, and really, it should be, again, up to the states. Uh, what we do in North Dakota is different than what we do in other places. We're working very hard to make sure that we reduce flaring and do a good job of it. Uh, but again, this federal one-size-all fits, uh, one, federal one-size-fits-all rule doesn't work. That's what we're trying to rescind with the CRA, and we, we need to get to 51 votes. We're not there yet. Senator, thank you so much for your time. Certainly appreciate it. Okay, good to be with you. That's uh, North Dakota Senator John Hoven. More straight ahead on the Rob Report, 701-293-9000, Hey, let's talk a little bit about the University of North Dakota shutting down their women's hockey program. I got some thoughts. More to come straight ahead. Welcome back, Rob Report, WDAY. 701-293-9000-888-970-9329. Email talk at WDAY.com. All right, let's talk a little bit about this situation at the University of North Dakota. They uh, they cut their women's hockey program along with a, a few other sports. Um, and it's, I mean, it created a lot of outrage. And to be perfectly honest, the way the university went about handling it was not not very good. I mean, the the team was, I guess, out on the ice practicing when uh, when the announcement came out, and they didn't know. Like like the people sitting in the stands, I guess, were aware of the fact that that the program had been canceled. But the players are out on the ice; they're not happy about it. But listen, there are some fiscal realities to, to college sports that at some point we're going to have to come to grips to. And th- this is always an unpopular opinion when I put it out there because people. People love sports, and I get why they love collegiate sports. I mean, it brings a lot of talented and entertaining athletes into our into communities like ours that could never support professional sports programs. So what we get instead are heavily taxpayer-subsidized collegiate sports programs. Not that professional sports aren't taxpayer-subsidized, but that's a whole other ball of wax. The issue here is that, these, these, these are attached to public universities, and these programs are a drain on resources. For instance, in 2016, the University of North Dakota women's hockey program lost over $1.9 million. And, and as a matter of fact, it would probably be more like $2 million, but they're counting in their operating revenue $156,000 in direct institutional support. That's a subsidy. In revenue generated from ticket sales in 2016, the women's ice hockey team produced just $25,000. That's pretty rough. It is it is fiscally irresponsible for 
a public university to operate a program at that level of loss. And and I'm not just saying that because a lot of people are going to point to, you know, commodity prices dropped, oil prices dropped, egg prices dropped. So North Dakota revenues dropped, and that put us in a bad situation. That was exacerbated by the fact that our state leadership massively overspent over the last decade. So there's that situation. A lot of people are going to blame the cuts on the sports programs on that. But it would not be fiscally responsible to operate a program that loses, you know, close to to, to multiple million dollars a year. Because who, who has to make up the slack on that? Right? When a program like that fails, who has to make up the slack? I can tell you in, in, in the most recent year for which data is available from the from the NCAA, the University of North Dakota spent over $10 million, $10.6 million in 2015 in direct university dollars and student fees subsidizing their, their sports programs. Now, that is money that went into the sports programs to make up the gap because all the revenue that sports was generating – from merchandise sales and concessions and ticket sales and media deals and everything else doesn't cover the nut. They don't revenue flow. And by the way, at North Dakota State University, they spent a little over $8 million. And by the way, and I have all the graphs and everything at sayanythingblog.com if you want to look at them. By the way, the reason why UND is cutting sports and NDSU isn't is because UND, their sports were not producing nearly the revenue that NDSU is, or, or at least the relationship between the cost of the sports and the revenues, UND was having to subsidize a lot more. Per student, per student at the University of North Dakota, we're talking about spending over $700 per student per year in subsidies. Again, those are student fees. Those are direct dollars that the university has to put into sports programs. At NDSU, it's about $560 per student. So NDSU is better off. But at both situations, we have college sports. And, and, and here's the, the, the fundamental. If you take nothing else away from this rant, take this away. College sports at UND and NDSU and just about every public, public university in the land make college more expensive. They are a drain on financial resources. It costs more for taxpayers and students because of collegiate sports. There is such a myth out there that these these sports programs are a boon for these universities, that they bring in all these dollars and advertising and merchandise sales and everything else. And the truth is, is that they are an expense. They are a cost. We are subsidizing them. And the weight for a lot of those subsidies falls on the back of college students, who, by the way, are already struggling with epidemic levels of debt. How is that a good thing? I understand it's unpopular because everybody loves sports, but how is that defensible? I don't know. More coming up straight ahead. Andrew Sadek's law, I keep pronouncing the name wrong, Andrew Sadek's law got gutted in the legislature. We'll talk with the Sadek family attorney about that. Coming up on The Rob Report. Don't go away. And thorough and sharp as a tack. She's playing with her jewelry. She's putting up her Facility and 
Welcome back, 970 WDAY. Rob Port. This is the Rob Report. We're uh, going to talk a little bit about what's going on uh, over in Bismarck. The Sadek family sent out a uh, Sadek. Excuse me, I keep pronouncing the name wrong. I do that with with A's. I. It's my Alaskan accent coming out. The Sadek family uh, sent out a press release earlier today about amendments to House Bill 1221. Now that's it's called Andrews Law. Uh, was introduced by State Representative Rick Becker of District 7 in Bismarck. Uh, the legislation would have set out guidelines for how uh, police um, use criminal informants. I, I, I think the audience probably remembers uh, the one of the, the complaints in the Andrew Sadek situation is that law enforcement bullied him and i i saw i think we've all seen the video online i i think that's a that's an accurate description bullied him into becoming a criminal informant exaggerating the con- the legal consequences for him if he did not um he ended up dead shot in the head backpack full of rocks in a river so the legislation is okay let's put in place some rules some guidelines for how we use criminal informants and and make sure that we're not putting people like that in danger uh today the senate judiciary committee or er, Yesterday, excuse me, the Senate Judiciary Committee uh, adopted some what's called a hog house amendment in the parlance of the North Dakota legislature, where they basically replaced the entire bill. And instead of the legislature writing specific guidelines for law enforcement, the bill basically just tells law enforcement, create some guidelines, which is sort of like telling your toddler, hey, just go ahead and make your own rules. According to the press release, I quote, this is from Tammy Sadek. My husband and I are frankly appalled to see the obvious gutting of this important legislation. We are appreciative of the efforts behind this bill and have had high and have had high hopes that it would pass in strong form. Unfortunately, the current version of this bill is weak. It is not what it needs to be. Uh, and I'm looking at the uh, calendar right now. So just as as we uh, during this show, the uh, the bill, the amendments to the bill were approved on the House floor. Uh, and then the bill was moved to the 14th order, and it was approved in its very much watered-down form uh, on a unanimous 46 to nothing vote. By the way, the original bill was passed unanimously in the House. Now the House and Senate have to reconcile those differences because the House passed the original version of the bill. Here to talk with me about it after that lengthy introduction, uh, attorney for the Sadek family, Tim O'Keefe. And, uh, Mr. O'Keefe, what's, what's going on here? Well, the legislature is completely, uh, or the Senate Judiciary Committee, completely mucked up the original bill and uh, to the point that it's, there's just nothing left. Um, they might as well just uh, had somebody call uh, ECI or Wayne Stengem and say, hey, why don't you guys think about putting some uh, guidelines down on paper, to which they would have said, as they did in the hearings that I attended, well, we already have guidelines. So... I think what they did essentially is say, you know, we don't want to do anything right now. Um, we're just going to bow to the uh, law enforcement and let them do what they want because what they have now passed in the Senate, that's not Andrew's law. Um, Representative Becker put together a, a nice proposal. It was eight pages long, had some uh, guidelines that come from model legislation that's been passed in other states, and it was very common sense, very reasonable, uh, put in some very basic minimum standards for law enforcement to follow. And the nice thing that it would have, would have done is made things a little more uniform so that the law enforcement in Fargo 
are following some of the same guidelines that, say, a deputy out in Watford City would be following. So now they've just they've stripped it all away. Um, and, and an example I can give you, Rob, is just uh, one of the things we wanted to see is just that when the initial contact is made to ask a criminal defendant or a potential defendant to act as a confidential informant, that they at a minimum be told that they have the right to call an attorney. Not that they have the right to have an attorney as they, they would in a public defender sense when they're charged with a crime, but that they know that if before you decide to do some of the most dangerous police work out there, maybe you want to talk to your attorney about what you might be facing and what the benefits might be before you agree to do this. Why, well, you know, and, and that was one of I, I guess as I as as an observer have have monitored the the, the, the situation with with Andrew Sadek, and as we've gone through reviewing what happened. I feel like that whole situation could have turned out differently if he'd had an attorney sitting next to him in that chair, in that room, when he had a law enforcement officer sitting in front of him, frankly exaggerating what the, the, um, what the legal consequences were for him not, not participating in a, in, as, a, as a criminal informant. So I mean, yeah. that alone, I, I, I think, could have, been, could have changed the, the trajectory of, of the, the Sadik case and, and perhaps future ones as well. So it's... It's very sad to see that out. Have you spoken to anyone in Bismarck? And I, I guess I haven't at this point because, like I said, the Senate just acted. I mean, there's still a chance for this because we have the House passed the original bill that we like right. where the legislature writes the guideline. The Senate passed the bill where they basically punt and say, you know, law enforcement, just write your own guidelines, which isn't really going to change anything. Is there any hope that in, that, that in reconciliation that the two sides can get together and, and maybe change this back into something that improves the situation? Uh, we're, we're still hopeful. Uh, Tammy Sadek, I think, would have loved to have called in today, but she's out there right she's now. She's in Bismarck. I spoke with her this morning. Yeah, um, yeah she's, she's speaking to legislators, hoping that when they conference that they will uh, reconcile this uh, back to the House version. Um, there's still hope if people contact their, their representative, their senator, that, that maybe something can still happen. But uh, this was a big blow to the, the bill and the, the original proposal. And, you know, this would have been a good start. This would have been a good start to say, hey, you know, let's not put our kids that don't have a criminal history in this situation without at least some information. Um, you know, Tammy would tell you that had uh, Andrew spoken to, to her or John, they would have told them absolutely not. Uh, you're going to at least talk to an attorney first. Uh, we, in our practice here at my firm, we, we handle this on a regular basis. We have clients come in and say, hey, I've uh, been approached to act as an informant. Um, what do you think? And, and at least then we have all the facts, and we can give them the, the facts. We, we won't exaggerate. We can tell them how criminal charges usually end up if you're found or plead guilty not uh, what the right. maximum guidelines are, not, as you, you very well put it, exaggerating uh, what might happen. And when I was at the, uh, the Senate Judiciary hearing, the chairman, Kelly Armstrong, who's uh, done a lot of criminal defense work, um, I, I thought he grasped it, and I thought uh, he was going to help uh, push this through, because um, I remember him making a comment about there's a difference between telling a lie and being untruthful. Um, you know, what in Andrew's case... He, he was told, look, if you don't help us, you're going to go to prison for 40 years. Those are, the, and, and it's true. If he, and he wasn't charged at the time, but had he been charged with two Class A felonies, 
the maximum penalty is 20 years in, in prison. Um, for one thing, those, those, those things are never run consecutively, uh, so it wouldn't have been 40 years. Um, he had zero criminal history. Uh, what the most likely outcome of his case would have been if you talk to any prosecutor, any law enforcement official, is a deferred sentence. He wouldn't have spent time in jail, and uh, he would have been told, you're on uh, probation for a year, don't mess yeah. up. And then we'll clean this up because he had zero criminal history, zero contact I, yeah. with law enforcement prior to that moment. In 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 that vein, I have an emailer who says, of course, the simple answer is don't break the law and you won't get in that situation to begin with. Now, I think that represents a view a lot of people have where, sure. you know, they, they feel Andrew was doing something that he probably could have been convicted of. He I know that was never adjudicated, but he. You know, he 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 knew he he'd been caught. He'd been caught doing something illegal, and that was the leverage law enforcement was saying to become a CI. And a lot of people are saying, you know, well, you know, a, you know, he he has to live with some of the consequences he created for himself, and b, that, you know, we want criminal informants to to work with law enforcement. So, so sort of address, I guess, that point of view. Playing devil's advocate here, mm-hmm. address yeah. that point of view that that people have. I don't disagree with that that emailer that you know if you break the law there's there's likely to be a punishment uh what we try to do uh as a you know from the perspective of a lawyer is just make sure that in administering that sentence that the proper rules are followed that you you're not stripped of your constitutional rights and any rights that you have in in that process so that it's fair. You know, it, it, I agree, don't break the law, and then you're not in this situation. But if you do break the law, you should have the same rights as, as everyone else that's charged with a crime in yeah. being able to consult with an attorney, appear in the court, defend yourself, or, you know, at least negotiate with the prosecutor on a sentence. What, what the misconception is is that these people that agree to serve as confidential informants is that their charges are dropped. That's rarely the case. Uh, people that are, are charged with a crime and agree to be confidential informants still typically are adjudicated and, and found or agree to plead guilty, and they might receive a, a break on their sentencing. The federal courts have a great system, a lot of protections, a lot of um, protections for the people that agree to, to be informants. Um, they are in constant contact with law enforcement, somebody overseeing what they're doing, and there are guidelines that are followed that you know are are set in law as to how yeah. the sentence can be reduced. But it doesn't mean that they're they're being set free and saying, "Oh, well, now that you helped us, you won't be charged anymore." That's that's rarely the case. People well, don't ha- pay for the crimes that they commit. Yeah. Well, what what happened in the Senate was unfortunate. I thought that Becker's bill was good policy that could move us in the right direction and and maybe stop something like what happened to Andrew Sadek. Uh, happen to somebody else but I, I i guess we'll see what happens at conference committee tim thanks for your time today certainly appreciate it you bet thank you rob that's tim o'keefe attorney for the Sadik family and uh, i'll keep you updated on what's going to happen with that bill we'll wrap up the show right after that th- right after this this is the rob report on 970 wday don't go away Welcome back, Rob Report. Last uh, few minutes of the show, going to wrap things up. 701-293-9000, 888-970-9329, email talk at wday.com if you want to get in. we got a call from Karen. 
Go ahead, Karen. Well, police are allowed to lie to criminals, which I actually like that for if someone has committed first-degree murder. But lying to someone to get them to risk their life is a different matter. Yeah, it's 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 a, it's depends on the context. Um, you know, it's it's one thing if uh, you know it depends on the context. And 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 I say that my my father actually used to do undercover drug buys as a law enforcement officer in the state of Alaska. He was a member of the Alaska State Troopers and he used to do a lot of things like buy cocaine from dealers undercover. And obviously, that's a situation where he had to lie. You know, if they ask him if he's a cop and he's undercover buying drugs, he's not going to say, yeah, oh, yeah, you got me. I'm a cop. <laughs> you know, I mean, if that's uh, so, I it, listen, it's a complicated situation. Law enforcement's got a tough job. I don't think anybody wants to get in the way of law enforcement using people like criminal informants. I think we just want to make sure that before somebody makes the decision to be a criminal informant, which can be a risky endeavor. Right. Which has potential legal obligations that, you know, we make sure there's some guidelines like they should know that they can talk to an attorney about that decision. So I, I, I think I think Representative Becker's bill was reasonable. I think killing it uh, is unfortunate. I, I you know, I, and I guess they didn't kill it. They just they amended it into something that, that doesn't really um uh, doesn't really do anything. Doesn't really accomplish anything. Uh, Neil emails about the. Uh, we were talking about the uh, University of North Dakota killing the uh, women's hockey program. Uh, Neil says, Rob, women's hockey is a product of Title IX. In my opinion, it wouldn't exist if not for that regulation. How do you feel about Title IX as it pertains to college sports? Uh, shouldn't the sports that are profitable have priority, no matter which gender is playing? Uh, there was a time when India at NDSU when women's basketball drew better than the men's program you know title nine is certainly i mean it's tough because on one hand you want you want the ladies to have the same opportunities as as men do i mean nobody nobody wants to discriminate or 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 to create an unequal you know level of access at at the university you know that said it's just a simple fact of life you know i mean we could all probably maybe cite examples here and there but generally, men's sports draw better than, than female sports. Men's sports are going to be going to generate more revenue than, than female sports. But here, here's the kicker. Really, none of these programs generate profits. They, they just they don't. The coaching staffs are expensive. The travel's expensive. The uniforms are expensive. The facilities are expensive. They don't cash flow. They don't make money. Um. So I, I I don't know. I mean, from that perspective, I mean, if if I had my way, I would I would take, and this is on this is you know, I understand this is not a popular opinion most people are going to like, but I would take these high profile competitive sports off campus, and and the only the only athletics that I would have on campus are those aimed at fitness and those aimed at just having fun, you know, like intramural sports or something like that for the students. Outside of that, you know, this 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 highfalutin NCAA where it's it's supposedly amateur sports, but they're right at the borderline of being professionals. Move that to like club play, right? Move that, move that off the campus. Let somebody turn that into a club. You know, I don't know. Start a nonprofit and and you know get collect donations from and user fees and everything else from the people who want to play or people who want to watch. 
and get it off campus. Because on campus, you know, whether it's men's teams or women's teams or what have you, it's it's a revenue suck. It is making college more expensive for the students who go there and for the taxpayers. It's just fact. Jay Thomas Show is coming up next. Remember, you can always catch me here 1 to 2 p.m. Monday through Friday on 970 WDAY or 24 hours a day, seven days a week at sayanythingblog.com. Thanks for listening. And we'll talk again. Practice all.